Yo, what's up, Instagram and YouTube? I want to talk to you guys today about the Lord's Prayer. Leonard Ravenhill said that no man is greater than his prayer life. Charles Spurgeon said that prayer is the engine of the church. And I would have to agree with that. And for that reason, because of its utmost importance, I want to delve into this topic and read for you guys Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through uh, five and hopefully give you guys some insight on how to pray appropriately, how to pray biblically and how to pray in such a way that you will gain results and your prayer will ultimately be effective. And so with that said, uh, let us just look at verse one uh, in the 11th chapter. And this uh, teaching begins by saying, one day Jesus was praying in a certain place when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. So number one, a couple of observations I want to draw out from this text is, number one is that Jesus was praying in a certain place. Okay, now he was in the very act of praying. What does that suggest? Is that he was modeling to his disciples what prayer looked like. He wasn't just giving theological lectures or giving prayer in, in a mere theory. The art, his art of discipleship and the science of a science he had uh, in relation to discipling others involved him modeling it for other people. Now, he also had a selected place. Now, we know that this certain place was the Garden of Gethsemane, um, or probably was Garden of Gethsemane which is important to note because the Bible says he often resorted there. And this would be Jesus' closet. This would be his, desi his designated place where he would resort. And the reason why we want this is because we want a controlled environment to where we can um, eliminate distractions, eliminate anything that would be, um, wouldn't be conducive to help us to get into the ascendancy of prayer and would ultimately derail us from focusing on God. But number two is this. It says when he finished, so his disciples knew better than to interrupt him. They were waiting until he was finished to begin to ask a question because they knew that to pray to God is more important, to speak to God is more important than them to speak to Jesus, right? And, and so he's, Jesus is in the act of praying to the Father, and so they don't want to interrupt. They knew that man talking to um, his fellow man, and I say fellow man because Jesus was 100% man and 100% God, but they knew to speak to God was more important and should not be interrupted because it's a holy communion, a holy discussion, a holy uh, uh, um, communication. And so therefore they were more respect, they were respectful to, they were respectful enough not to interrupt. But here's also another observation that I get from this text is, is that um, one of his disciples was bold enough to ask him, Lord, teach us to pray. And so there's two things that I get from this. A, um, they viewed Jesus's activity of prayer of such great value that it was worth asking him to teach them. You don't ask people to teach you things that isn't worthwhile. But in, in, in their case, I'm sure they've seen him command the storms to be still, 
He commanded demons to come out of people. I'm sure they've seen the Father provide through the breaking of bread, the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. I'm sure they've seen so many miracles and the raising of the dead such that they knew that the secret was in praying and that his prayerfulness was yielding immense results and that to have an absence of that effective art of praying would be detrimental to their lives and, and ultimately ruin their ministry and, and uh, render it powerless. And so they see, they're looking at Jesus like he's gaining results. Lord, teach us to do that. Don't, he didn't ask them, teach us to cast out demons, teach us to read the Bible, teach us hermeneutics, teach us theology. All those have its place, but the utmost importance rested upon the, the, the factor of learning prayer. And the second thing I want you to get from this is that Jesus believed in teaching people. And not only Jesus believed in teaching people, John taught, uh, believed in teaching people because it says just as John taught his disciples. So John was teaching his disciples as well. This was an ancient practice. This is why they said, Rabbi, where do you live? They wanted to be in his close proximity so they could not only see it modeled, but for him to articulate the, the dynamics and the details of, of the, the theory behind his practice. And so that they would have a theological grounding, a biblical grounding in why Jesus is doing what he's doing and how he's doing what he's doing. Verse 2, he says, he said to them, when you pray, he doesn't say if you pray, he says when you pray, say, so the verb say means you have to speak it aloud. A lot of times people want to keep prayer meditative or they'll say within their hearts or they'll, they'll muse within their hearts. That's meditation, that's good, but that's not prayer. Prayer is when you speak aloud, and we know that uh, speech is very important. That's why if you speak the name of Christ before men, Jesus will honor you before his Father, but if you denounce him, with, which requires word before men, he will also denounce you. So we have to speak things aloud. It says, Father. And so... <laughs> That, that right there, you can unpack it so much. But I will try to condense it as much as possible. We know in Galatians and in Romans, it says we have the spirit of sonship whereby we cry, Abba, Father. And so if you're not, if you're not assured of your sonship or you're a daughter of God, you're not going to have confidence toward God. But if you are assured that he is your father, then you're going to have great confidence as you come to him because you know that he is uh, not only able but his fatherly heart is willing to bestow to you gifts and to, to secure you, to aid you, to assist you, to protect you, to provide for you, to forgive you, and that he loves you, right? So there's a sense of intimacy. We come to him not as, as judge, though he is. We come to him not as mere creator, though he is. We come to him as father. It says, hallowed be your name. So, in other words, we have to have a disposition of heart that recognizes that though we are in intimate relationship with God, that he is nevertheless to be hallowed. He is sacred. He is holy. is set apart from sinners, as the writer of Hebrews states. And therefore, we must have a particular posture in our hearts that is cognizant of that, recognizes that, and prays in such a fashion that, that, that implies that. Right? And that's why... When a lot of preachers, they pray in a nonchalant way as if they're talking to a homeboy or they're talking to, you know, you know, just a, 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 
you know, just a, a, a nonchalant greet to a bystander, like that stuff doesn't register to God because you have to have a depth, a sense of, of, of gravity. There, there's a lightness in the relationship in the sense that you have confidence that, that he loves you and you love him, but there's nevertheless a sense of hollowness. He is sacred. He is valuable. He is, he is infinitely more valuable than anything in this life. And so um, if we would approach an earthly king who, who is sovereign in such a respectful way, ought we not to approach the Lord with reverence? For it is the reverence of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom. <laughs> so we're to hollow his name. So in other words, as we come to him, we come to him as, as his as his. In a way that is fitting for his name, we come in alignment to his authority, to all that he wills and all that is reflective of, of his authority, his kingdom and, and his will. And that's why it says your kingdom come. And so a lot of times people, you know, Ravenhill said this, the only rapture the church is looking for is rapture from responsibility. We just want to be raptured out of here and just go to this distant place we call heaven, not realizing that one of the uh, um, core uh, values of Jesus was for the kingdom to be brought here. And that's why Jesus says, if I, by the finger of God, cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So we need to see the, the manifestation of his power. We need to see his glory. We need to see demons cast out, people healed. And so that's what heaven is like. And therefore, the kingdom of heaven must come here to earth. This is what Daniel the prophet prophesied about, an unshakable kingdom. So we are to continue to pray in such a way that would suggest for his kingdom to come. It says, give us... Or in, in, in Matthew's account, in Matthew chapter 6, it says, and your will be done. And this is what it says in 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 through 15, or 14 through 15, where it talks about this is the confidence we have towards God, that if we ask anything uh, in His name, according to His will, He hears us. And if, we, if He hears us, we have those things which we've asked. So we need to be praying uh, in, a, in alignment to His will. So if it's in contradiction to the Bible, we, we can be assured that, our prayer is not going to be heard. And therefore, we're going to be playing a waiting game for no purpose. We need to be praying in such a way that it's His will. And if you don't know what His will is, that's where it's important for you to listen to the Holy Spirit to gain prophetic insight so you can pray into those things. Or you pray in tongues because as you pray in tongues, the Spirit intercedes for you in accord with the will of God. Verse 3, Give us each day our daily bread. And so this, this we can come. These uh, this is what's categorized as petitions. There's different facets in prayer. There's lamentation. There's confession. There's intercession. And and there's more facets of prayer. But one of those facets is petition. And those are uh, legal petitions we bring before the Lord, so He can evaluate them to see if they're in in accord and consistent with the Holy Scriptures, um, such that when He reviews it and it's in accord with the Bible, then he approves it and grants it in his own time. And so these are legal petitions, um, and, and specifically here is legal petitions in relationship to our need. So God cares about uh, uh, for us to be provided with food, clothing, housing, or whatever it is. God cares about those things and wants to provide for those things. This is what he talks about in the Beatitudes. Don't worry about what you shall eat, what you shall drink. And so the, the solution isn't just merely to not worry about it, as it says in Philippians chapter 4, verses 
I think in verse um, 6 through 8, don't worry about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, present your request to God. So the solution to not worrying, as Jesus instructed us in the Beatitudes, isn't to just not worry and, and leave it there, but the solution and the antidote is to turn that worry into, and, and burden and then translate it into prayer and cast it unto God. Verse 4 is, forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. So the Lord cares about um, forgiving our sins. He wants to forgive our sins. Otherwise, he would not have instructed us to pray in this way. And we need to pray this on a daily basis, whether for sins that we are cognizant of, uh, conscious of or unconscious. And this is why David said, cleanse thou your servant from hidden faults. And, and keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. So there's hidden faults we don't even see. And we need to confess that because we're like um, a car that collects dirt as we drive out. Even though uh, it may not be necessarily visible, that stuff begins to weigh on us. We need to pray, Lord, forgive us. Forgive us of sins, uh, either in omission or commission, things we've done, things that we have avoided in doing that we should have done. Right? And, and this, is on, this is conditional. We have to forgive those who have sinned against us. Otherwise, we're just like that, uh, that unjust servant who was forgiven of his debt, but then he, he exacted uh, um, for the servants underneath him to, be forget, to, to pay their debts, even though that, that unjust servant was forgiven much of a great debt from the king. And finally, it says, "...and lead us not into temptation." Um, Matthew's account in Matthew's gospel, he says, and deliver us from the evil one. So there's two things there that we're praying about is, and this is echoed in Jesus's instruction to his disciples in the garden of Gethsemane and Luke, Mark, Matthew, and John, where he says, pray that you may not enter into temptation. So the solution to avoiding temptation isn't just to resist, resist, resist by sheer will. It is to translate our uh, dependence from self to God, and and prayer is married to dependence on God. That is, prayer is the language of the poor, so that when you're impoverished in spirit, and you're poor, and you're destitute, you realize you can't do it, and you're weak, God wants to translate that into Christ's power resting on you, but grace and power doesn't come if your lips don't move. So that's how we receive strength and grace to avoid temptation, and lastly, it says, deliver us from evil. One of the things that the church refuses to pray about because um, we've become more in touch with Joel Osteenism and mainstream evangelical Christianity more than we are in tune with the scriptures and, and what it purports, um, we avoid praying for God to throw our enemies into confusion we see in First um, Samuel, David prays, or First or Second Samuel, David prays in this fashion. He begins to weep, and he says, "O Lord, confound the counsel of, ah of Ahithophel." Um, we see that the Lord threw the enemies of God into confusion. We see that He delivered His people from evil. <laughs> we see that in Acts, earnest prayer was made for Peter, and and because Herod had arrested him, and in in relation to their earnest prayer, God actually sent an angel to kill Herod. I'm not saying that we should ask the Lord to massacre our enemies. That's not what I'm suggesting. What I am suggesting is when 
when there is rampant wickedness coming against God's people and against your loved ones, then you begin to pray that the Lord confound your enemies, throw the enemies of God into confusion, put a hedge of protection around us, begin to deliver us from evil, stop the hand of the wicked. May every uh, 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 attack and wile that they hurl towards us be confounded, may, may it not prosper, and uh, may um, the snares that they have, have set not fall to us. This is what David says, let their snares become a trap to them. And so um, this is how we're protected. The Bible says in Psalms that uh, the heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth he has given to men. A lot of times people attribute cruelty to God because they assumed that God was going to deliver them, but they never prayed about it. Or they would assume that God was going to protect them, but they never prayed about it. And so earth belongs to man. This is man's jurisdiction, and God wants entrance into it, but there is no legal entrance for God if you don't invite him into your realm. That's where the Bible says in James, you have not because you ask not. And so when God doesn't do anything, then we attribute cruelty to God. That's why 430 years the people of Israel was in bondage in Egypt until the day they cried unto the Lord. Then he came and he delivered them from the wickedness of Pharaoh's hand. And he broke Pharaoh's hand. He delivered them out of Egypt with a strong arm. What did he do? He afflicted Pharaoh with plagues. And so we think that God is just frolicking through the meadows and blowing on dandelions and just kissing the dog and the cat. And that he, he, he isn't uh, angered at those who wage war against his people. And uh, surely he is long-suffering, he is merciful, and we pray for the salvation of our enemies. But nevertheless, there comes a point in which we, like the importunate widow, go to the judge and say, Lord, avenge me of mine adversaries. And says, shall not the God of uh, of uh, of his, you know, shall not the God of the elect avenge his elect who cry to him day and night? I assure you, he will avenge them speedily. But when the Son of Man comes on earth, shall he find faith? And that's the last verse in Jesus' teaching on persistence and prayer. But the first verse begins this Luke says, Jesus taught them to a parable unto this end that men ought always to pray and not faint. And so fainting in prayer equates to an absence of faith. You no longer have faith and therefore you don't ask. And so with that said, I hope this teaching blessed you. Uh, God bless you all. And uh, may we grow in, the lives, uh, in our lives of prayer. And the Lord will reward you openly if you pray in secret. In Jesus' name.